I wanted to talk tonight about everything else <laughs> before you go. <laughs> huh? um, most of it is centered around taking that sense of possibility and bringing it to life through our daily lives and through our practice. A couple of years ago, I came to San Francisco for a conference, and somebody brought me to Grace Cathedral to walk the labyrinth. The labyrinth, as most or perhaps all of you know, is a, a pre-patterned uh, walk that you follow. You simply follow the um, pattern that's laid out, starting at the edge of something and coming, finally, to rest right in the centermost point of that pattern. Grace Cathedral had both an indoor labyrinth, which was this pattern set on a rug, and an outdoor labyrinth, which was carved into granite. So my friend dropped me off, and I went inside, began with the indoor labyrinth, started right at the edge of the rug, and just followed along the pattern that was laid out in the design. And I was almost at the center when, strangely enough, my path led me right out to the very edge again. And I stood there and I thought, I made a mistake. <laughs> what did I do wrong? I was almost there. It was almost completely accomplished. And suddenly, I'm way out on the edge again. And I thought, I must have done something wrong. But this is not exactly like rocket science. You know, this, the pattern is already laid out. You don't even have to figure it out. You just have to put one foot in front of the other. So I persevered, I kept on going, and lo and behold, having gone way out to the edge, simply by following the path, I found myself going from the edge right to the very center. And I thought, look at that. Sometimes you think you're almost right there, and somehow the path brings you into this wide arc, what was really strange was that, having done that, I immediately went outside to walk the outdoor labyrinth, which is the identical pattern, but in granite. And I had the identical experience. I was <laughs> almost in the center, and the path led me way out to the edge, and I thought, I must have made a mistake. <laughs> and then I thought, wait a minute, didn't you just have this experience four minutes ago? <laughs> Didn't you notice and mark upon the fact that sometimes you think you're almost there and your path's going to take you further out to the edge? And so it is. The unfolding of our spiritual lives, just like the unfolding of life itself, often has this element of mystery, of entering the unknown, of having to take the next step because it's what's asked of us right in that moment. And really in a heartfelt way, needing to just keep on going. There are many, many images and concepts and stories that are used to illustrate this point because it's the essential point. We have, according to the Buddhist teaching, each and every one of us, such a vast potential 
that's a given, that's innate to our nature, no matter who we are, no matter what we think of ourselves, no matter what we may have been through. We have this innate potential. And now it's up to us to trust that, to make it real, to nurture that, to actualize that. The effort that we need in doing that is the effort that's, that allows us to keep going even when we thought we were almost there, right in the center. And all of a sudden, we're way out, further on the edge. It's not an effort of, of straining or belittling ourselves or um, somehow gritting our teeth and, and struggling. It's an effort of holding both that tremendous sense of aspiration, the confidence that we have the right to be happy, that we deserve to be happy, and the effort that allows us to gently persevere, no matter what might be happening. One of my early teachers used this example in describing the process of meditation practice. He likened it to trying to split a piece of wood with an axe. He said, let's say you hit that piece of wood 99 times with the axe, nothing happens. Then you hit it the 100th time, and it breaks open. Mostly, in that moment, we start thinking, what did I do differently the 100th time that made it work, that made it right? Did I hold the axe differently? Was my stance different? But actually, it's not that we suddenly got it right. We did something differently that hundredth time. But rather, with every one of those previous 99 blows, the fiber of the wood was weakened. Then with the hundredth blow, it could break open. And even beside that, it's not just the mechanical fact of the fiber of the wood being weakened. From the meditative point of view, it's the very fact that we kept going. It's the whole internal process that happened so that we had enough of a sense of humor and enough patience and enough endeavor and enough faith and enough sheer willingness to keep trying so that we would keep going, even though it doesn't feel that good. Number 33, number 34, number 35, seems like nothing's happening. But it is happening. It's all part of a greater picture. This is the single most important point, is how do we sustain the energy to keep on going? All of spiritual life, in a way, unfolds in a single moment. But we don't tend to notice it much until those moments become more continuous. There's a very kind of homey example that has always meant a lot to me in my own practice. And that is from the Buddha. This is a big paraphrase, but he said something like, the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving-kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. 
As soon as I heard that example, I loved it. Because right away, I could imagine myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. You know, one was standing there and fantasizing about how glorious it was going to be when it was completely filled and not having enough patience and humility just to add the next drop, which of course is what I would need to do. The other fantasy I had was to see myself standing by that bucket, looking in and saying, ooh, it's kind of empty in there. <laughs> I don't think it's ever going to get filled. And just despondent, I'd stand there. Again, instead of once again adding that very next drop. What we need to do is not so complicated. And it's not beyond us. But we need to do it, and we need to do it in the moment that presents itself. Since that time when I first heard that example and came up with those two scenarios in my mind, I thought about others, including the great habit pattern of comparing. You know, instead of taking that moment and adding the next drop, just kind of leaning over and looking into someone else's bucket, you know, and saying, well, how are they doing compared to my bucket? You know, that looks good or that looks bad or whatever it is. There is so much that is possible right here and right now with whatever experience we are facing. The, the other aspect of this teaching, which is so extraordinary, is that it doesn't matter what we're facing. Because the water drop does not get added to the bucket by the experience. It gets added by how we are relating to the experience. How much compassion are we bringing forth in relating to whatever? How much love? How much kindness? How much mindfulness? That's the important thing. The foundation for living a life this way, of actually, in a real sense, not an idealistic sense, but really having the commitment and the energy to face the changing situations of our lives in that spirit, the foundation is really a daily meditation practice. Whereas theoretically or abstractly, we would never need to do that. We could just practice all day long in any situation. The truth for most of us is that we need a period of the day which is dedicated to these values and to bringing them to life in a practical way. If for no other reason, then we need to understand for those minutes, however many minutes they are, we need to understand the difference between an intellectual appreciation of something, or even a, a distant reverence for something, and practicing it, actually doing it. I first went to India, as I said, in 1970. I'd been a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo. One of the courses that I took was in Asian philosophy, in which I first heard about Buddhism. Then I heard about a program that the school was offering where you could submit a proposal for independent study and go off to another culture for a year. The idea being that you would come back to Buffalo for your final year to do a kind of cross-cultural study. And my joke is usually it being Buffalo, New York. Many of us went, and not that many of us came back. <laughs> 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 it's true. 
So I, I really wanted to study meditation, not just theoretical Buddhism, but I really wanted to learn how to meditate. So I submitted a proposal to the school to go to India and, and to learn to meditate and to study Buddhism, and they accepted it. So I went off. About three months later, I entered my first intensive 10-day meditation retreat. I entered it feeling a certain sense of smugness, one might say, because I thought, well, you know, I studied Asian philosophy in, in Buffalo. And, you know, I had done term papers on karma and, you know, um, all these things. And I thought, oh, well, I really understand. And it didn't take probably 15 minutes into my first meditation to see I didn't understand anything. Because, in fact when we talk about something like Buddhism from the point of view of personal transformation, we're not talking about an abstract study. We're talking about studying ourselves, studying life, and studying it in a way that allows us to break free of old patterns and old habits and to actualize this enormous potential we have. And so I could have sat there in that meditation hall and recited every book I'd read it didn't make any difference. What mattered was how I could look at my own experience. So sometimes we talk about Buddhism as being a kind of transparency. As we've mentioned, when we do look at the Buddha, it's because of what it shows us about ourselves. And when we look at ourselves, it's not just about a potential we have, any one of us, for compassion, for loving kindness, for wisdom. It's about a potential we all have. So we look at ourselves and we see all beings. That's what's really important. And so for many of us, it takes that rather humbling experience of sitting down and looking at our minds, and looking at our bodies, and looking at the nature of change, to realize that it's not a question of intellectual mastery. And then somehow having a dedicated period every day builds a foundation so that without a lot of thinking during the day, and contrivance, we find that we are supported by the natural arising of these values, of this spirit of mindfulness, of loving-kindness. If we nurture those things, they will come back, they will return to nurture us. And so it's almost like the meditation teacher's creed. You have to take a vow to suggest to your students that you sit every day. And so I'll fulfill my part of it and say, sit every day. When I was first practicing in India, my first teacher said to us, sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, which is a wonderful thought. <laughs> and it worked okay in India, and it works okay for some people here. But it's very, very difficult. It's very difficult. 
And I genuinely believe that what is most important of all is the everydayness of it. Even if it's for 15 minutes. But to really dedicate some time where you can get in touch with what you really care about. And you can honor that part of you and strengthen it. If you can sit for more than 15 minutes, then that's really wonderful too. Most people experience in a daily life sitting that it takes about 15 minutes anyway to actually arrive. The first 15 minutes are, I forgot to call so-and-so, and that refrigerator is really loud, you know, I think I need a new one, and, you know, on and on and on and on. Which may still happen after 15 minutes, but it's almost like there's this um, cascade of thinking, which is like a de-stressing, and that's wonderful. If you can sit beyond that, past that, then not only do you get the, the effect of, of that kind of letting go or discharge, but you get to go into a deeper space. So sit every day. One of the reasons it's so hard to do is because we tend to be so extraordinarily judgmental, as I'm sure you've noticed. (laughs) When we're hitting that piece of wood and it's number 32, number 33, number 34, number 35, it doesn't seem like much is happening. It's not that easy to keep going. I, like everybody, was very embroiled in that habit of mind. When I was in India, I wasn't always on intensive retreat. There were times when I was on intensive retreat, and there were times when I was just living there and practicing every day. And what I discovered was that when I would sit, and it was exhilarating, it was satisfying, my mind was serene, or I was filled with love, or there were wonderful feelings happening, I would sit there and think, oh, this is terrific. I'm going to live in India for the entire rest of my life. I'm always going to meditate. I was born for this. You know, I must have been a Buddhist in my previous life because, you know, I just love this so much. It's so great. I'm never going to leave. And the next day, if I sat down and I was bored and I was restless or I had a lot of thoughts or my back ached or my head ached or something like that, I would feel completely defeated. I would just feel discouraged and I'd get up. I'd give up. I'd think, this doesn't work. You know, it only works on retreat. Or, I can't do it. You know, it's been working for 2,500 years, reputedly, but it doesn't work for me. And I would just give up. So finally I went to one of my teachers, Manindra, describing this pattern that I was going through. And Manindra, as maybe you can tell from the stories, was very, very good with one-liners. So I told him my story, and he looked at me and he said, I have one piece of advice for you, which I was very grateful to hear. And he looked at me and he said, just put your body there. He said, that's what you have to do. Just put your body there every day. Some days it's going to be this way, and some days it's going to be that way. It's a little like that labyrinth, actually. You don't really know. 
We are so addicted to liking pleasant feeling. And we get so self-blaming or so ashamed or so angry at unpleasant feeling. But what's important in the unfolding of the Dharma is not how it feels in the moment. It's something much more profound than that, that's underlying that, that has to do with what is called forth from us in response to how it feels in the moment. So just put your body there. In any practice, there will be many, many changes. There will be ups and downs and times that feel good and times that don't feel so good. It's all a part of an integrated whole. We have to simply do it. And just as you've seen many things in your minds here in this week, one continues to see many things in one's mind. But again, it really depends on how we are relating to it. Once, not too long ago, I was leading a, a day-long uh, loving-kindness retreat in New York City. One of the things that I like so much about teaching in cities is that people do their walking meditation outside, just on the streets. Not so slowly, usually, but uh, just walking around. And in the metta, silently repeating the phrases of loving-kindness. So we were down in, in Soho in the city, and it was a walking meditation. I went out to walk along with everybody else. So I was walking around the block, offering loving-kindness through the phrases to the different people that were coming by, when somebody who was in the class came by. So we looked at each other, and we had that little kind of secret smile, you know, of, oh, I know you, you know, I know, I know what you're thinking, too. <laughs> you know? And there's this very satisfying moment, and then we, we went apart, we passed each other, and then someone else walked by who was in the class. So we looked at each other in the same way, with that, that little smile and kind of delight in knowing we belong to the same little club of loving people on the streets of New York. And then we passed each other, and then somebody came by, and I thought, they might be in the class. I'm not really sure. Were they sitting in the back? You know? And I, I didn't know whether to include them in my special little group or not. So I went on, and then somebody came by, and I thought, no, they're definitely not in the class. <laughs> and then I realized what my mind was doing in making that special little group, in having that secret little smile, in trying to decide if somebody belonged in that secret little group or not which was rather an affront to the basic principle of inclusion <laughs> in loving-kindness. So you will see in your minds that and much worse <laughs> as you open, as you open to yourself, as you open to other beings, as you open to all beings. It's going to be like that. And what's important, of course, is to see if we can come back to 
that primary understanding. How are we relating to what we are seeing? How are we relating to our own fears, our hesitation, our definitions of people into us and them? And always bringing forth as much compassion as we possibly can. In a way, it's like we can look at the day as formal practice and informal practice. The formal practice is when we sit, or perhaps when we walk, if that's your chosen method of spending that dedicated time. And then the rest of the day is when we are living. Many of you asked about combining Vipassana or mindfulness practice with loving-kindness. There are many ways of doing that, which are really very personal. You might decide that you really want to explore the nature of loving-kindness practice and just make that be your practice for some period of time. I made that decision for a while, for about four years actually, after I went to Burma. I thought, well, I really want to see what this practice is like. So whether I was on retreat or not, I pretty much devoted myself to doing that. Other times, or other people, might feel that they want to pursue it really just as a support for an awareness practice, something that people often do for a few minutes at the beginning of a sitting, some other kind of technique. Because if you do it at the beginning, then it's a way of establishing some of that sense of kindness and warmth and the non-judgmental mind. Many times we do it at the end of a sitting, some other technique, because opening in the sense of loving-kindness is a way of reminding ourselves that whatever practice we do could never be done really just for ourselves alone. <coughs> it is done for the sake of our freedom and the effect of that on others, on all beings. No matter what you do in the formal practice of a daily sitting, I find that loving-kindness is a wonderful way to just informally move through the world. Walking down the streets in New York, standing in line in supermarkets, waiting in somebody's office, sitting on an airplane, sitting on a bus. Many years ago when we opened our center in Barry, the Insight Meditation Society, uh, Stephen Armstrong, one of the other teachers there, wrote a kind of mock brochure for the center. He said things like, come to IMS and get to drink all the tea you could ever want and get to eat off of institutional cutlery and things like that. And he had as the IMS motto on this mock brochure, it is better to do nothing than to waste your time. <laughs> Which I think is pretty reflective of retreat life, you know, and what we learn. It is better to do nothing than to waste our time. So really we have two choices. We can, or three if you can't wasting your time, but if you don't consider that one. We can do nothing, which means, generally speaking, be mindful, be aware. Don't be adding to the situation based on habit. 
or we can actively be generating a force of loving care. No matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, it's really quite available to us. The realm of the mind in which loving kindness takes root and transforms is the realm of intention or motivation. In fact, that's the realm of the other three practices as well, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. From the Buddhist point of view, we can divide action, some action that we do, into three parts. The first part is the intention. It's the heart space that sparks the action. It's the, the inner space that gives rise to the action. It's the motivation. And in Buddhist teaching, the intention behind an action is the critical component. It's the energetic component of the action. It's where the life is. And we can see that just through simple examples. So say I wanted to give one of you a book, and I reached down my hand, picked up the book, and made the offering. Maybe I was offering you the book because you have a book I really want. Oh, well, you know, if I give you this book, maybe you'll give me that book. Or maybe I'm offering you the book because I really like you and I want you to have the book. Or maybe I'm offering you the book because I begin to think, well, I'm sitting here in front of a room full of people and I want everyone to think of me as very generous, so, you know, maybe I better reach down and offer this book. The actual physical movement of my hand reaching down, picking up the book and stretching out is the same. But the inner space giving rise to that, the motivation, is very, very different. So that's where the energy is. That's where, um, according to classical Buddhist teaching, that's the karmic seed, is in the intention. So that's of primary importance. And intention is the realm that metta transforms, rather than, in general, coming from a place of fear and feeling separate and feeling angry. In general, we make a home in feeling connected, feeling inclusive, feeling at one with, feeling friendship toward. So in general, that becomes more of the place of our motivation. The second aspect of action, after intention, is the skillfulness or unskillfulness with which we act. This has a lot to do with sensitivity and awareness, awareness in a bigger sense of looking at context, trying to see with as much discernment as possible what might be an appropriate way to do something? What might be an appropriate way to express something? So for example, if out of a a beautiful, kind, wonderful motivation, I want to say something to somebody, I might reflect 
for a moment with as much awareness as I can bring forth to the situation, what might be the best way to say it? You know, should I shout it out in front of 50 other people? Or maybe I should take them aside and say it privately? Or is there a way that, to the best of my ability to discern, it will be more skillful, more skillfully said? So this also is an arena of a lot of learning, where we listen and we learn from our mistakes and, and we grow in understanding and understanding of ways to be skillful. Then the third aspect of action is what we might call the immediate result, both in terms of what seems to be the effect of the action right there and then, and in terms of how it is reacted to, what is the kind of praise or the kind of blame that we get for what we've said or what we've done. This is an interesting teaching because this arena of action, especially in terms of praise and blame, is where the Buddha talks about the development of equanimity, which is the fourth of the Brahma-viharas. Because here's the realm, or here's the arena, which, in fact, we cannot control, no matter how aware we get, no matter how mindful we get, no matter how loving we get. So what if I had this beautiful, wonderful urge, this motivation to give you this book, and I do it, I present it in a way that as far as I can tell, is, is really skillful. It's really appropriate to the situation. But just before you came into this room, you stopped in the laundry room where the phone is, and you called home, and you found out that you just won $15 million in the lottery. So I hand you this book, and you could not care less about getting this book. You barely even noticed that I'm alive. What does that mean about the quality of my heart? What does that mean about the quality of my generosity? What does that mean about the integrity of my action? Nothing. But here's the place that we use so often to decide who we are, how well we've done, whether we deserve to be happy. And here's the place where we actually could never control the whole confluence of conditions that are coming together in that moment. And this is why our hearts break in action so many times. When the Buddha talked about the nature of life, he talked about praise and blame in that fabric of change that's outside of our control, of pleasure and pain, and gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. It's that way for everybody. There is no one in this world who is only praised and is never receiving blame for what they do, no matter what the motive and no matter how skillfully done. There's a story from the um, Buddha's time that I like, which illustrates this, where um, it said that one day a man came to the monastery to learn something of the Buddhist teaching. And the first person he came upon was this monk who had taken a 
temporary vow of silence. So when the man asked him, will you teach me something about what the Buddha taught, what the Buddha teaches, the monk remained silent. And the man became furious and he stomped away. Then the same man came back the next day and came upon a different disciple of the Buddha's, a monk who was very renowned for his learning and scholarship as well as for his depth of practice. So when the man asked him, will you tell me something of the Buddhist teaching, the monk went into a rather elaborate theoretical description and the man became furious and he stomped away. The same man came back a third day, came upon a disciple of the Buddha's named Ananda. Now Ananda, having heard what happened on the first day and having heard what happened on the second day, it said that Ananda was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man became really angry. He said to him, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily? And he stomped away. So this group of people went up to the Buddha and they said, oh Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. And it's not that he or I am proposing a model of not caring, of being indifferent, of being blank uh, in response to that, but rather to hold the truth of things in such clear perspective to have a big enough, a wide enough view of life so that we can sustain our effort. We can look back to our own intention as the source of our integrity. We can look back to the skillfulness with which we've acted as the field of our learning. And we learn to let go. What's so amusing, actually, is when we receive a lot of praise and a lot of blame for the very same thing. Once some point after my first book, Loving Kindness, came out, it was here in California, actually, and um, I had lunch with somebody who said to me, oh, you know, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way that it's really like being with you. It's just like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was ecstatic. I was so happy. It was a thrilling thing to hear as a writer. It meant so much to me that that night I was having dinner with a whole other group of people, and I brought it up. I said, oh, you know, I had lunch with someone today, and this is what they said. And somebody at the dinner table looked at me and said, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading your book. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay. <laughs> You can either be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner, <laughs> or you could take a moment and think, it's the same book. <laughs> it's the book I wrote at that time from whatever motivation it was bringing it forth with whatever level of skillfulness I could bring to the situation. It's the same book. And that's not to say I didn't notice <laughs> the difference between one comment and the other, or I didn't register, or I didn't care. Well, of course I cared. But how much do we care? 
how completely up and down do we go? How out of touch do we get with ourselves? With the power of our own motivation? How destroyed do we become at dinner when it doesn't go as well as lunch? That's the power of equanimity because it's going to keep changing. In a way, we practice all four of these practices of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity to know how to act in this world, to transform our field of motivation, and to create a context of equanimity that is so big that we do not get caught in both attachment and, and despair over the immediate fruits of our action. And the truth is, actually, we don't know. We think that what we've done or what we are doing has a certain discrete, finite, limited result. But actually, we don't know. I had a very, very powerful experience of that once, which was very important for me. As I look back on it, as uh, Kamala mentioned the other night, it's a little bit complicated, this story, but as Kamala mentioned the other night, uh, there's a woman, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the leader of the democratic movement in Burma, who was placed under literal house arrest for six years. While under house arrest, her party won the uh, election, although she was never allowed to take office. While under house arrest in 1991, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. After those six years, well, as Kamala said, she, during that time, knew that she could leave Burma and be reunited with her husband, with her children in England. But she always chose to stay because she was and is the symbol of hope for the people of Burma, for democracy. After those six years, she was released from literal house arrest, and then there was a brief period where she was quite a bit more free when she could converse with journalists and people like that. And then again, her life became quite constricted, which it remains right now, although they don't call it house arrest anymore. So in that brief period when she was speaking to journalists and many Westerners were frequently um, and easily going to see her in Burma, she talked about her years of house arrest. She said that she didn't want to accept anything from the Burmese government, from the military dictatorship, and so uh, she was often hungry, she was malnourished, she was sick, sometimes she was too weak to get out of bed. She developed a heart condition. There were lots of difficulties that nobody really knew about until she was able to speak about them. So that's one whole part of the story. Now another part of the story is Burma not only is this country uh, that is ruled by a military dictatorship, but it's also a place where many of us have done quite a bit of Buddhist practice in the monasteries. And, um, in 1984, we brought over <clears throat> to Barry Mass 
a Burmese teacher, Saira Upandita, who became our teacher. In that course in Barry, the three-month retreat, he had quite a brilliant translator. And we had 90 tapes at the end of that course. So some of us got together and decided it would really be a wonderful thing to create a book based on the talks he gave in Barry <clears throat> at that retreat. So we raised money and got a transcriber and had all the tapes transcribed and had a friend edit who did a mammoth amount of work in editing all of those tapes and found a publisher and created this book, which is called In This Very Life, The Liberation Teachings of the Buddha. <coughs> I was put out by Wisdom Publications. And at the end of that project, having shepherded it through from beginning to end, I thought, well, that was a nice thing to do. You know, I did something that, or we did something that um, was really an expression of gratitude to our teacher, and uh, which was a great thing. And it's a very clear, wonderful expression of the Buddhist teaching in a very classical format. And I thought, well, this will never be a bestseller um, because it's so classical. But in its own way, I think it would be a really nice book. And in my mind, I actually put it in the minor good deed category. And I thought, okay, that's fine. Um, well done. And I forgot about it. So then, back to Aung San Suu Kyi. When she was released from house arrest and she had that brief respite, several of my friends went to see her in Burma. And much to my complete shock and amazement, she told each of them and later wrote about the fact that her main source of spiritual support during her years of house arrest was that book, was Upandita's book, In This Very Life. Turns out that her husband had sent it to her from England. She'd been trying to meditate as a Buddhist born and raised. She felt that she, she needed to use the techniques of Buddhist meditation to try to spiritually sustain herself during her what was, in, in fact, an imprisonment. But she didn't know how, actually. She said that she would sit and just grit her teeth and get more and more tense as these various things were coming up in her practice, and she didn't know how to deal with them. And then her husband sent her the book, and she taught herself how to meditate using the book. So when I heard that, <laughs> you can imagine how I felt. It was really extraordinary. And I could not have guessed in a million years that a Burmese teacher would come to Barry, would give those talks, we would create the book, it would go back to Burma and be able to support someone who really is like a genuine hero of our times. So then I thought, that someday I would write a book called Basically Clueless. <laughs> because we are. We have no idea. We do something, and in this vast world of interconnectedness, it just ripples out. That experience transformed me, actually, and I really felt committed to... Whenever I saw the possibility of some good, even in what seemed to be a small way, 
not to disregard it and not to belittle it or say, well, you know, it's not going to make that much difference, so I won't bother. But to really try as much as possible to do the good that is in front of me, that appears, the possibility or the opportunity that arises with the best motivation that I can and the greatest skill that I can. Because beyond that, we don't know how it's all going to unfold. And in that light, we practice basic morality or virtue. The simple encounters that happen between beings, between people. How do we speak to one another? How truthful are we? How kind are we? It makes a difference. It's very important not to dislocate one's spiritual life from how we actually behave with one another. Trying to bring forth as much as possible a sense of, of care, of kindness, of compassion. Not only for others, but for ourselves. So we land spiritual practice in everything. How we are, how we relate, what we do, and how we care. It's not that we assume a persona that's unreal or self-righteous or, or false in some way. But knowing that what we do matters, we try to not be reckless, not be harmful. And still, we can be who we are, and we can admit our thoughts and our feelings and so on. My favorite example of this, actually, is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Once, some friends and I were at a Buddhist Christian conference with him at Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton had lived. The Dalai Lama arrived early in the day for the conference, was given a tour of the monastery, then opened the conference that night, which was also being televised on PBS. So he began with a kind of formal presentation, talking about Thomas Merton and talking about Buddhism and Christianity and, and these religions meeting in the West and so on. And then he just did this segue. He went off and he started talking about his tour of the monastery. He said how much he liked it, how impressed he was that the monks there were self-sufficient, that they supported themselves completely through manufacturing cheese and fruitcake. Then he said, they offered me a piece of cheese, which was very good, but really what I wanted was a piece of that fruitcake. <laughs> and he said, no one offered me any. It was really very sad. It looked so good. And he went on and on and on about how much he wanted that piece of fruitcake and how nobody gave him any. And 
I actually, I was sitting next to a bishop, and I leaned over and I said, do you think you could get him a piece of fruit? <laughs> and it was really funny because it was so clear that the Dalai Lama's deepest sense of happiness was not based on getting that piece of fruitcake or not. But in some ways, it was almost more based on his being so open and so childlike about admitting it. Admitting that he wanted that piece of fruitcake. Being able to laugh at himself. Being able to have that, that kind of, almost a, a kind of compassion, you know, in that humor. And to be able to do that in front of the dignitaries of two different religions and a television audience. You know, that's more where the happiness came from. So it's not a question of, of pretense, but very much a question of, of dedication, actually, of forming a clear intention about what we want in our lives. And then step by step, doing what we need to do to make it real. So I'm going to close with a passage from Susan Griffin from a book called Woman in Nature, which I think is a beautiful expression of, of this vision of life that can support and mold our intention toward the good, toward loving kindness. She writes, We say that you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving, and we are part of this motion. That the soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts on each side of the mountain like the parting of our hair. That the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight, this water rises to the sky. This water is carried into clouds and comes back as rain, comes back as fog, comes back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. You cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say every act has its consequences. That this place has been shaped by the river, and the shape of this place tells the river where to go. We say, look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say, and one thing follows another. There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred, and we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.